Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Rhoda. He's a philosopher and an academic librarian. We're going to be talking about open theism and just a lot of fun topics today. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Rhoda. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, so I appreciate the opportunity, Zach. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. So what we're going to be doing today is just kind of go through open theism. Uh, Dr. Rhoda is an open theist, so we're going to talk about like what it is, um, reasons to be an open theist, objections, and just all kinds of just fun stuff. So could you talk a little bit just to start off about like a little bit about who you are and what you do? Well, uh, as, as you said in your intro, I, uh, I currently work as an academic librarian. Uh, before that, I was an aspiring philosopher. Um, I earned my PhD back in 2004. Uh, at Fordham University, and I, I taught philosophy at the college level for about 10 years, uh, uh, winding up at, at Notre Dame as, uh, as a postdoc there and then a visiting scholar for a couple of years. But uh, the bottom kind of dropped out of the uh, academic uh, job market, and with, uh, with the family to support and everything, it uh, seemed wiser to uh, change careers than to uh, keep throwing Hail Marys uh, out there in the form of, of job applications that <laughs> weren't getting much traction. So, uh, and I'm glad I made the switch because uh, I was able to land a library job straight away and, you know, I'm gainfully employed. So, <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, so today we're going to be talking about open theism. So to start off, you want to just talk about like the basics of what open theism is? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the term open theism goes back to a book that was, well, published, uh, I think, in the 90s uh, called The Openness of God. And uh, before there was a book by Richard Rice, I think, uh, that used that term. Um, uh, so it's not a term that's been around a long time, uh, the, though the ideas have been around for a while. Uh, um, but Here's what I mean by open theism. It's the view that God has sovereignly decided to leave the future of his creation to some extent open-ended, to be shaped by the genuinely free choices of his creatures. And because the future is open-ended, an omniscient God knows it as such. Therefore, the future is open-ended for God and not just for us. The openness of the future is not just an artifact of our limited knowledge, but it's a core part of God's original design plan so as to allow for genuinely creaturely freedom and genuine responsiveness on his part. Mm, that's great. So do you want to talk a little bit, uh, maybe to start off here, just a little bit about like your journey and what kind of like got you like interested in open theism and like why you are uh, an open theist? Yeah, uh, that, well, yeah. So my journey started when I first became aware of, of what's commonly known as the problem of freedom and foreknowledge. Uh, I, I, I got exposed to this problem as an undergraduate in college when I read a book by William Lane Craig called The Only Wise God, uh, in which he lays out the problem and then presents uh, his, his own preferred solution, which is Molinism, which we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, uh, 
and uh, this, you know, was something I encountered just as I was really starting to get into philosophy, and 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 I uh, I found Craig's book extremely illuminating, and and at the time I found it very persuasive. So I uh, for the next uh, few years I was a, you know I was a Molinist. Uh, he converted me to Molinism, um, but I had nagging doubts in my mind. Uh, mm. When I was an undergraduate, I wrote a paper uh, on Molinism for a class, and part of my research for that, I came across an article by William Hasker, uh, who is also uh, who is an open theist. Uh, uh, I I didn't fully understand Hasker's article, but he posed a question in there that nagged me. And, and it's, it, it, it forms the basis of what's now known as the grounding objection to Molinism. Uh, what, if anything, makes God's middle knowledge, and the Molinist you know, has this theory about how God's knowledge uh, or how God's foreknowledge works, and it all hinges upon this concept of middle knowledge. I'll, I, I won't elaborate on it for now, but... Uh, uh, but uh, Hasker asked the question, how, how does God come by this middle knowledge? It can't be grounded in God's nature just because of, of the way it's supposed to work on, on the mold and the scheme of things, and it can't be grounded in creation. So where does it mm -hmm. come from? Uh, and I admit, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good question. Mm -hmm. uh, so that nagged me. Uh, uh, still, I persisted as a Molinist uh, for some years. And uh, because it just seemed to be the only viable option to me. Um, then I got into uh, grad school, uh, went to Fordham University, which is a, a Jesuit institution, and started uh, to rubbing shoulders against uh, a bunch of Thomists who were there. Uh, these are these are people who, you know, who are schooled in the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, who is a, a major influence, especially on Roman Catholicism. Uh, and, um, and, you know, we got to discussions of freedom and foreknowledge, and, and I was surprised to find that Thomas, in general, at least, you know, especially your serious ones, don't like Molinism. Hmm. Uh, uh, they, uh, especially this one guy I was talking to, you know, he's, he's, you know, like Aquinas is his homeboy, you know, and, uh, um, and he was insisting that no, you know, uh, because, you know, God is pure act, you know, mm -hmm. uh, God, God, God is, is absolutely impassable. God, God cannot, God's knowledge can't be conditioned in any way by creatures. And uh, so, huh, you know, so no, Molinism, you know, doesn't fit with, with uh, core commitments of Thomism. And, and, uh, and that uh, uh, set me back to the drawing board. I said, huh, okay, I'm here at the school around a bunch of Thomists, and I'm, you know, being steeped in that environment, I'm starting to feel like Thomism might be right or be on the right track. And so for a while there, I kind of, toyed around with being a Thomist, mm. um, uh, but uh, which, um, how do I say it? Um, 
but there were still aspects of Thomism that didn't quite fit. Uh, hmm. One problem that Thomism has is how to relate God to creaturely contingency. Uh, you know, you know, like we think uh, at least it's a dogmatic commitment of Orthodox Christianity uh, that creation was a free act of God. God could have created or could have chosen not to create and could have chosen, could have created a very, a different sort of world hmm. uh, than he has in fact created. Uh, so God had freedom. Uh, so, and creation is contingent. It didn't have to be here. Uh, but if you're a Thomist, everything about God is, you know, you know, God is identical to God's essence, right? You know, the, this is core commitment, you know, God is ipsum esse subsistens, uh, that is his essence. He is being itself uh, without limitation. He is pure act and all this stuff. And uh, so it follows from that, that God cannot be conditioned in any way by creation. There is no, as the Thomists say, there's no real relations between creation and God. Uh, and this makes, a, makes it, it a bit hard to understand how God could be contingently a creator. Right. Because if God is identical to his essence, then everything about God is essential. Right? There can't mm -hmm. be any contingent properties in God. Mm -hmm. And so either you have to make all of this, all the contingent parts of creation have to be extrinsic or external to God. But then it's hard to see how God could, you know, uh, then it starts to look like that the God is essentially indifferent to creation. Mm -hmm. And you get a God that's more like the God of, Aristotle than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, a God who is providential and, and concerned with creation. So, so I toyed around with Thomism, but it's kind of bothered, and, and they didn't really seem to have a clear answer to the freedom for knowledge problem. Um, uh, for a short while, I, I actually played around with Calvinism uh, because the Thomism kind of pushes in that direction. Mm -hmm. You know, God is the ultimate cause of everything that happens, according to Aquinas. Well, that's, that's the same kind of God you get from Calvinism, you know, this theistic determinism. Uh, so I read some books by Calvinists and said, okay, maybe it's right, but that only lasted about a month because I, I uh, then became convinced that no, any any form of theistic determinism is just going to hit a wall when it comes to the problem of evil. Mm. Uh, it just makes God, you know, if God is the ultimate sufficient cause of everything in creation, well, then God is the ultimate sufficient cause of human sin and of Satan's rebellion and, and of everything gets pinned on God. Uh, and there's no genuine human responsibility. All of us become mere kind of puppets or, you know, we're just conduits of the causal forces that God mm -hmm. has set in motion yeah. at the beginning of creation. Uh, there's no genuine agency that you or I uh, have where we can contribute something unique, something original. 
we're just playing out the, a script that has been written by God beforehand. Hmm. Uh, and that didn't, didn't seem, seem satisfying to me at all. Um, so um, I toyed around some more, seeing if I, if I could get Molinism work. But again, the grounding problem kept coming back. Yeah. I don't know how you answer this. Uh, uh, I can't go with theistic determinism. Uh, I don't think Aquinas had a solution because he can't deal with the issue of creaturely contingency at all. Uh, it's it's something his system can't really accommodate. Uh, and so uh, I started thinking, well, what could the answer be? I think I have to affirm creaturely freedom. Hmm. Um, if I re if I if I'm deny determinism and deny Molinism, then th then I have to say something that when God set up the world, He deliberately designed it as kind of an open-ended experiment. Uh, where God is kind of sets the broad parameters uh, uh, for where creation can go, but he's not steering it every step of the way, every little bit. If creatures have genuine freedom, then we are contributing substantively to the story. We are shaping the course of the future. Um, and if and if you and if you set the Molinist story aside, and the, uh, then there's no way for uh, God to be providentially managing, you know, uh, every single decision creatures make. Hmm. Right? You can't have a micromanaging God without either determinism or something like Molinism. Uh, and so you get a God who's, for, for, the, the providentially speaking, for whom the future is somewhat open-ended. God mm. has to, you know, kind of, to some extent, you know, and, and, and it's entirely up to God to what extent this is. Uh, God has to, you know, say, okay, here's a decision for you. What are you going to do? You know, are you going to eat the apple or not? Mm -hmm. uh, and so to speak, you know, choose you this day whom you will serve. You're going to serve me or you're going to serve, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, these other gods. Um, and uh, depending on what people do, the choices we make, God works with that. Hmm. And ultimately, he's going to work all things, you know, out according to his, you know, broad plans. But... Um, so, so here's what the view that I kind of arrived at open theism without knowing it was open theism at the time. And, and it was shortly at this point that I stumbled across uh, a book that had recently been published, uh, edited by uh, edited by Clark Pinnock called "The Openness of God," mm -hmm. and it had uh, it was the, the co-authored uh, uh, John Sanders and uh, Bill Hasker were contributors and stuff. And, and, and this book spoke exactly to what I had arrived at independently. Mm. Uh, I said, yeah, that's exactly 
how I feel it's got to be. Yeah. Uh, because nothing else seems to work. And, and, and I was pleasantly surprised to find as I read that book and then a following book uh, by John Sanders called The God Who Risks, uh, that there's actually a fairly strong case to be made from scripture for mm -hmm. the view. You know, maybe not a knockdown argument from scripture, but, but there's a respectable uh, wealth of texts that one can point to that suggest something like open theism, you know, that God is flexible in his relations to creation. Mm. And, and this is like, wow, I didn't know about that. Um, and so from that point on, I started considering myself an open theist uh, and started interacting uh, online with other open theists like Greg Boyd and others. I was, um, and in fact, I collaborated with, with uh, Greg Boyd on a, on a, the first philosophy paper that I ever published uh, in faith and philosophy um, back in, uh, when was that? I don't know, it was like 2006 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, um, but anyway, uh, that's that's the general story. Uh, since that time, uh, I, I, you know, you know, became really interested in the metaphysics of open theism and and the kind of the general problem of freedom and foreknowledge and uh, just trying to kind of map out the the conceptual terrain there and mm -hmm. and as I pursued that inquiry and I'll I'll touch on some of that a little bit later in the discussion mm -hmm. uh, I became uh, convinced that uh, it's really open theism or bust, uh, mm. that, that the only, I think, kind of viable positions are something like open theism. And well, it's, if not that, it's going to be something that's either providentially equivalent to open theism, or it's going to be theistic determinism. Mm. I don't yeah. think any other options on the table. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, so I think now would be a good point to kind of go into some of these like proposed solutions to this um, freedom and foreknowledge um, kind of idea here. I do want to say at the end, we hopefully will have a little bit of time here for Q&A. Um, so if you want to send those in, we'll hopefully get to a couple at the end. So just into these proposed solutions, the first one is Molinism, which you kind of talked about how you were a Molinist at one point, um, which would kind of say something like, well, God can foreknow what we'll freely choose to do. Um, so mm -hmm. I'd be curious, like, what do you think are the issues with Molinism? Um, you talked about like the grounding objection. So like what, yeah. what's going on here? Okay. So let me, for the sake of your listeners, let me give a, a statement of what Molinism is. Mm -hmm. It's, um, so the Molinist, uh, has this view that before God decided to create, that God, uh, has somehow had access to this information about all uh, what, what they call conditionals of creaturely freedom or, mm. uh, or counterfactuals of creaturely freedom or whatever, uh, that, uh, such that if uh, so-and-so, you know, like Peter, say, were placed in, uh, in this circumstance uh, and you spell out the circumstance, you know, with great precision, uh, then he will. Then he would freely deny Christ, mm. and uh, and the 
and the Molinist uh, 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 supposes that God, before he decides anything, has this knowledge about every, uh, all the possible creatures he could create and every, poss every possible choice situation that they could be placed in. Hmm. And, uh, and based on that knowledge, he, he, he decides what world he wants to create. Uh, and so then this world is going to be informed by all of these conditionals, all these these if thens. Uh, so he knows that you know if Adam, you know if he creates Adam and Eve and puts them in this in, in this uh, 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 in this scenario where they're tempted by a serpent in a certain way, then Eve is going to freely choose to uh, uh, choose to disobey God. Uh, and then Adam is going to freely choose to join Eve in that, and so on and so on. And so God can kind of, you know, work his way down the course of history and know exactly how it's going to play out because he knows for every situation how any creature would definitely respond, but freely respond in those circumstances. Um, uh, so, so, so if if modernism works, it gives you. Uh, a system whereby God can respect creaturely freedom and exercise meticulous, that, 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 that is, uh, 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 ha have precise kind of control over the details of history because God decides what overall scenario he's going to allow. And, and if, you know, if none, you know, fit his specifications then he, he could always decide not, not to create at all. Mm -hmm. um, so, There's a, a lot of objections I have to Molinism. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the the most well-known objection is the called the grounding objection, um, because Molinism depends upon God's having all these all this knowledge uh, uh, referred to as his middle knowledge or scientia media uh, of these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom prior to deciding what to create. Uh, we have this question: Well, where does this information come from? Now, Molinists insist that this knowledge does not come from God's nature. Okay, you know, why? Well, because if it uh, because if, if it was just part of God's natural knowledge, uh, part of God's essence, if you will, well, then it, it couldn't be contingent. And if these are going to be conditionals or counterfactuals, or creaturely freedom, they need to be contingent. It can't be a necessary truth that if placed in this circumstance that Adam and Eve are going to eat the forbidden fruit, right? Mm -hmm. It's got to be contingent or it's not genuine creaturely freedom. So it can't be grounded in God's nature, nor could it be grounded in creation because again, this information has got to be available to God before there is any creation. Mm -hmm. So then you have this question, well, then where does God get this knowledge from, this, this middle knowledge? And the seeming answer that you're going to get from the Molinist is, well, he just does. He just has it because these things are just true. Hmm. And that's it. That's, that's, that, that's all you get from, from defenders of Molinism like, uh, uh, like William Craig and others. Uh, it's, it's just this eternal cosmic surd that this information is out there. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 so that's a problem. Now, one, 
this this seems like metaphysically problematic. Truths, especially contingent truths, need to have a ground. You know, you know, if I say, you know, it's true that the cat is on the mat, you know, I say, well, you know, how is that true? Well, because there's a cat there and a mat there, and the cat is superimposed on the mat. Okay. That scenario in reality is what grounds or makes that truth true. And if reality were otherwise, or if there wasn't a cat there or wasn't a mat there, then the claim the cat is on the mat simply would not be true. Mm. Seems common sense, right? Uh, so if I'm going to say that there's this truth, this eternal truth of the matter, that if placed in a certain circumstance, that Adam and Eve would freely uh, eat the forbidden fruit, and you know, and there's nothing that grounds it, then then I said, how is this even true? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so, okay, so one, you have this grounding problem. That's step one. The second objection is, is an explanatory circularity objection. Uh, and this comes up in the literature. Uh, uh, so modalness, uh, like Bill Craig and others will, will say that, well, you know, you and I, by the choices we make, we can bring it about, counterfactually speaking, that uh, uh, that the counterfactuals of freedom that pertain to us are true. So mm-hmm. when I choose between, say, chocolate ice cream and vanilla ice cream, I thereby have made it such that, you know, if I had been created and placed in that circumstance, that I would freely choose chocolate. The counterfactuals of God's middle knowledge are dependent upon, in some sense, what choices I actually make. Because if they weren't, then they would, then then, then they would limit my freedom. Uh, but wait a minute. If if God's middle knowledge is dependent upon actually creaturely choices, but that middle knowledge is also explanatorily prior to God's decision to create those very same creatures in the first place, then you get this explanatory loop. The information's got to be provided by the creatures in order to inform God, in order to create the creatures. And uh, so that's not going to work, all right? That, that's just, you know, it, it's pulling information out of thin air, right, through this explanatory loop. Mm-hmm. Um, another problem with modalism and again, it, 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 it all stems from this idea of middle knowledge, okay? And and here's the Thomistic objection, right? Uh, uh, that Molinism offends God's aseity. God, God, uh, when when God exists, at, you know, prior to creation, you know, God and God alone, right? There is nothing there to condition God, right? Mm-hmm. But the Molinist says, yes, there is. There are these contingent truths that exist independently of God. Again, they're not grounded in God's nature. They're not grounded in creation. They're just sort of there. And Mm -hmm. somehow they constrain what God's able to do with creation. Hmm. You know, if it's an eternal truth that if Adam and Eve are placed in, in this circumstance, they will freely choose to eat the forbidden fruit. And that's an eternal truth, then God has to respect that. Mm-hmm. He cannot create a world in which he puts Adam and Eve 
and in those circumstances, and they not choose to eat the forbidden fruit, because this is an eternal truth that constrains God's options. Yeah. So, so, so modernism divide has to deny God's aseity. It makes God eternally, uh, uh, eternally conditioned by and limited by these contingent truths that come from nowhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's theologically problematic. Now, the final problem I have for Molinism, and this is one you're not going to find in the literature, because uh, I haven't written it up yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's that Molinism actually is an unstable position. Hmm. It's it's in, internally inconsistent in, in a way that it's going to collapse either into theistic determinism or into Occamism, which is basically the, the simple foreknowledge view. And let me set this up for you, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent a long time trying to think about the problem of foreknowledge and freedom, or more broadly speaking, the problem of fatalism, right? Mm-hmm. By fatalism, I simply mean the denial of future contingency, okay? Uh, uh, determinism is a kind of fatalism, right? Uh, right? Everything is kind of pre-programmed from the get-go. Uh, there's no leeway, uh, no, no genuine freedom. Uh, uh, and 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 I started to, to, to ask myself because I, I was, you know, uh, uh, well. If you look at what people say in the literature and online and stuff, uh, when they come to fatalism, it's generally they're they're they they are dismissive of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you look at the works of Bill Craig, he'll say, "Oh, it just commits a modal fallacy. You know, it, it confuses uh, what will happen with what must happen. Uh, uh, it confuses the uh, necessity of the consequence with the necessity of the consequent." And 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 uh, and uh, and I thought. That's too simple, because because uh, there seems to be something to this problem of freedom and foreknowledge that's not so easily dismissed, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I, I I sat down and I started thinking, uh, okay, how would I if I were a fatalist? How would I construct an argument for fatalism that was provably logically valid? Mm-hmm. What's the simplest and most direct argument I could give for fatalism? And and I came up with something. It only requires uh, uh, these two assumptions. One, you have to posit the existence of something that singles out a un- a unique continuation of history uh, from uh, from the present all the way to the future as the actual future, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I call that a future specifier, right? There's something that just that, that, that identifies from all of the possible futures and say, this is the actual one, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's lots of things that could serve as a future specifier on, on the traditional uh, views about God's foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge is a future specifier on Molinism. God's providential decree is a future specifier. 
Uh, if you're a causal determinist, well, then the causal laws and the initial conditions provide a future specifier, right? Hmm. Uh, uh, if, if you hold to an eternalist ontology of time, then time is just is this big space-time block mm -hmm. that always exists. Well, that, that block, that time, that temporal block is a future specifier, right? So there's different ways of, of, of specifying a unique actual future. That's not gonna get you to fatalism on its own. What you need is one more component. And you need to just say, that future specifier, whatever it is, is now unpreventable. That there's now nothing anyone can do about it. Okay? And let me give you an, an illustration to help make this more concrete, okay? Let's suppose God has, uh, God has foreknowledge, as, as is traditionally supposed. And suppose sometime a thousand years ago, uh, God revealed some details about your life today to a prophet uh, and this prophet uh, was instructed uh, by God to chisel uh, this information about your life, about you know all the details of your choices onto an obelisk, right? Mm -hmm. It's literally uh, written in stone, okay? Now jump forward a thousand years. Are you free to do otherwise than what's written on that obelisk? Hmm. Well, it doesn't seem so. I mean, I, I mean uh, on the one hand, you feel free about making your decisions. But on the other hand, if God has infallibly revealed to this person who wrote something, you know, in concrete, essentially, about what you're going to do, how could you be free to do otherwise? Because that would require you to sort of undo something or to go counter to, you know, an infallible uh, uh, kind of revelation from God. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, you know, if, if this thing, uh, and here we're using the message of this obelisk as kind of a picture of a future specifier, you know, it lays out the future. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if that's unpreventable, you know, there's nothing you can do now that can change what was written on that obelisk. And that obelisk infallibly declares everything that's going to happen in your life. You know, again, then how are you free to do otherwise? Mm -hmm. Right. You have yeah. an un, uh, uh, your, your future is not just specified, but it's unpreventably specified. Mm -hmm. And my argument is that's all you need for fatalism. If you give me those two ingredients, you know, a future specifier and, and, and you have that future specifier is fixed or unpreventable, there's nothing that any of us can now, can now uh, make otherwise, then our freedom is just an illusion. So what do you get from modalism? You get a future specifier. God's eternal decree contains a complete specification of all of history. Hmm. This decree is made independently of our existence. It is, and it is made, uh, and uh, at least according to Orthodox Molinism, uh, it is not informed in any way by any of our choices. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, so Molinism gives you an unpreventable future specifier. 
I have no say about God's middle, the content of God's middle knowledge. I have no yeah. say about God's decree. So Molinism actually entails fatalism. Okay. The only yeah. way to avoid. Oh yes. I'm no, sorry. no, no. I was I was going to move on here if you were if you were done. But no, feel free to add what you're going to say. No, no rush. Uh, yeah. Let me just just add this one extra, mm -hmm. extra point. So, if I'm right about the argument for fatalism, that that you just need these two assumptions, then there's only two ways to avoid being a fatalist. Mm -hmm. Either you have to deny the existence of these future specifiers. That's the route taken by open theism that's that's to take an open uh, to, to take an uh to to affirm open futurism there is nothing that uniquely and completely specifies the future there is no such thing as a complete true story of the future for god or anyone to know mm -hmm. okay the future is in fact in reality open-ended and that's why god knows it as such or you can take what's called a preventable futurist line. In other words, here you say, yes, there is something that specifies the future, but it's not unpreventable. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and this is the line taken by the simple foreknowledge view, or, or otherwise known as Occamism, which we'll get to in just a sec. So the Molinist has a dilemma. You know, uh, if they if they take the standard view of Molinism, God's middle knowledge, we have no explanatory power over God's middle knowledge or God's decree, then you have an unpre unpreventable future specifier and Molinism entails fatalism. On the other hand, if as some Molinists such as Bill Craig do, wanna say, no, you and I, by making the choices we do, can, uh, can make it such that uh, God's middle knowledge was different than than it may otherwise have been. Mm -hmm. Well, now you've made you've turned this into a a, a, a you you become a preventable futurist, and essentially what Molinism does is then it collapses into Occamism. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you lose all of the providential oomph of Molinism, but mm -hmm. that was one of its selling points, right? Yeah, the Molinism was supposed to get you a a high degree of providential control and a strong view of creaturely freedom. And I'm saying you can't have your cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. uh, you're gonna have to give up, uh, you know, have to go one way or the other. And that means Molinism either is gonna collapse into theistic determinism or it's gonna collapse into Occamism. Uh, it's not a viable position. Mm. So let's, let's look at Occamism then, AKA simple foreknowledge. Here's the view that God uh, from eternity past is somehow able to look forward down the corridors of history, right? Mm -hmm. And know everything that's going to happen. Well, how does he do this if things aren't causally determined, right? You know, again, if determinism were true, God could, of course, have this knowledge, right? He could just mm -hmm. say, well, I know all the causal laws and the initial conditions, and I could just predict out from there, you know? Yeah. Uh, how how the story is going to unfold? But if we if we don't have determinism in place, then God can't just project from you know can't just extrapolate from past and present conditions onto the future. So so the alchemist says, okay, God gets this knowledge from the future mm -hmm. that that when uh, Adam and Eve choose to eat the forbidden fruit, 
that they provide the content to God's foreknowledge way back at the beginning of creation. And so God knows, oh, okay, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, 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 so it's our choice, our actual choices that inform God's foreknowledge, according to the alchemist. Mm. Uh, well, this gets around fatalism. It, it, it you know, a, a, again, to avoid the fatalism, you either got to be an open futurist or a preventable futurist. The alchemist is a preventable futurist. Okay, so that, mm -hmm. we're, so we're not worried about collapsing into fatalism. Uh, problem with alchemism. Uh, it seems, you know, if this information was actually available to God way back in the distant past, it seems that it couldn't be preventable, like the mm -hmm. alchemist says it was. Right? You know, the alchemist says that's a soft fact. Well, no, the because the thought experiment about the obelisk and stuff and the prophet inscribing something on it seems to indicate that no, it would be a hard fact. You know, if God had mm -hmm. wanted to, he could have revealed this information to someone back in the distant past that could have been written on stone your whole life, right? The whole the whole future of creation, if there were room on a stone, right? You know, mm -hmm. uh, or or God could have inscribed it with his own hand, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and just miraculously made, okay, here is a, you know, the, the, the prehistory of all of creation. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm revealing it to you ahead of time, so you know that I'm God, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, so, and just as we have no control over the past, we can't change or affect the past, it seems that God's past foreknowledge of our future would have to be unpreventable. Mm -hmm. How is it that you and I today have power over that? It's not clear how that's possible. Uh, the second point is alchemism or simple foreknowledge view also has a grounding problem, right? Mm -hmm. What is it, you know, how is the past truth about what you're freely going to do in the future, how is that grounded? It can't be grounded in the past, right, because it hasn't happened yet and because determinism is false. Uh, well, okay, well, the alchemist says, well, it's grounded in the future. But wait a minute, the future hasn't happened yet. The information, right, until the choice is made, the information as to what you're going to freely do isn't there. Hmm. So uh, how, how is it available? How does that information get available to God in the past if it doesn't yet exist? Hmm. Right, because the future's not here yet. So, right, again, it seems we're pulling information out of thin air or we wind up with some kind of a like a causal loop, uh, you know, like somehow I, by my choices, bring about God's having always known that I was going to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, that I'm, I'm somehow have this kind of backward, you know, ability to backwardly affect the past. And that mm -hmm. just doesn't seem like a kind of power we actually have. Mm -hmm. um, uh, final point, simple foreknowledge is true then God's knowledge of your free choices is grounded in the actual occurrences of your free choices. It means it comes too late to be providentially useful to God. Uh, so, like the simple forward knowledge view is providentially exactly equivalent to open theism. Mm -hmm. um, 
There was a book published a few years back by Michael Robinson called Storms of Providence. He defends a simple foreknowledge view uh, in the area, and he discusses open theism too, but he winds up rejecting open theism for reasons that I, I don't think are, are all that strong. But then he, he defends his own model of providence, and I was, I was intrigued when I read his book to discover that his model of providence is exactly what an open theist would give. Hmm. You know, it, it's, it's isomorphic. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so simple foreknowledge isn't, has metaphysical problems of grounding on its own point. Uh, and it's really not, at least providentially speaking, an alternative to open mm -hmm. Now we come to timeless knowledge. This, this is an old view, goes back to Boethius. Uh, it's been reaffirmed in modern times by people like C.S. Lewis and others. Here the idea is God is outside of time. Time is like this container. All of creation is within this container. Mm -hmm. And God is outside from the standpoint of eternity. God looks down and can see the whole container or the whole timeline there before him. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and this is how God knows everything that's going to happen. Okay, well, one big plus of this view, it avoids the grounding problem. Mm. Right. God's knowledge is grounded in the actual occurrences of events because they're all there from his eternal perspective. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a plus. Uh, on the on the opposite side, it, 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 it seems to threaten fatalism. If from God's perspective, all of creation, all past, present, and future is all laid out there. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, then from from the God's eye view or from the absolute perspective, there really is no such thing as becoming or change time. The passage of time is an illusion. Right. The, you know, all of history is just there. Just, you know, uh, imagine like a ruler stick or, 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 you know, it just, you know, and the inch marks on it denote the sequences of events. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just laid out there in front of you. Well, we have no temptation to think that the the uh, uh, to think that the successive ticks on the ruler actually mark, you know, real temporal passage. Right. Mm -hmm. They're just, you know, an arrangement of ticks on a stick. Uh, well, the same thing would seem to be true if. You know, God from eternity sees all creation laid out as this big static block. Well, all you have is this static block, just like the ruler. It's just there. It just, you know, nothing's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and but free choice seems to require a genuine happening. There's a there's a transition from a a. a a position where you are undecided between two options, A and B, and then there's a subsequent moment when you are pursuing, say, option A, mm -hmm. right? There's a real transition that happens. It, it, it's, it's not clear how, how you can actually have real transitions, real becoming on a, in a static view of time, an eternalist, you know, block model of time, and that's mm -hmm. but that's exactly what but what the what the timelessness move requires. 
Uh, time is a static block. It seems to make everything static. Nothing's really happening, which means there's no real change. There's no real agency. All that stuff is really just a perspectival illusion that how things seem to us from those people who occupy at a given time one slice of that temporal block. Mm. You know? Yeah. Um, and uh, final point, same point as a simple foreknowledge. If God's knowledge of creation is based upon in the actual occurrences of history, then by the time God has the knowledge, it's providentially useless. Mm -hmm. God can't do anything. So, oh, okay, because I know that so-and-so is going to do this and that today, I'm gonna go a different, you know, uh, uh, I'm gonna do something differently and kind of head him off at the pass. Mm -hmm. Well, no, no, because, because that knowledge of what's gonna happen in history already factors in all that stuff, Yeah. right? The whole history is laid out. So, so it's not like you get this knowledge that then you can do something with that you weren't already going to do otherwise, mm -hmm. right? Okay. The knowledge yeah. is providentially useless. So providentially speaking, uh, again, the timeless knowledge is either gonna fall into a version of fatalism or theist determinism, or it's gonna be providentially just like open theism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so the upshot. I don't think there's any providential options to open theism. Uh, if we set aside Molinism, which I think is is multiply inconsistent on, on a bunch of different levels, if we set aside this determinism, that I think uh, is can't deal in any satisfactory way with the problem of evil. Uh, and if the other alternatives are at least providentially equivalent to open theism, then then that seems to me to be uh, the way we should think about divine providence. Yeah, it's great. Um, so we do have only probably about 10 minutes left, so I don't think we're going to get through um, everything that I sent you um, yeah. with regards to like, objections and such. But one thing I love just like a little comment on is kind of mm -hmm. like the biblical um, – you're obviously a philosopher, not a theologian. But I think a yeah. lot of people would say like, oh, the Bible clearly teaches that, like, that God has this foreknowledge. Um, yeah. So do you want to just like briefly comment on like that general idea? Because you talk about thinking there is biblical support um, for yeah. open theism. Yeah, I, it's an excellent question. Uh, again, I'm I'm a, uh, uh, a philosopher and not a theologian per se, uh, but I will say there are you know so uh, ways that open theists can 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 deal with the biblical texts that seem to indicate foreknowledge. So, on the one hand, you have passages uh, that seem to be uh, prophetic about the future uh, how how are we to understand that uh, uh, there are several options that the open theist has uh, and they can you know decide on the particulars of the passage and and the details of the case which one which option fits mm -hmm. best uh, one is, is to say you know uh, you know since God has sovereignly decided to create an open and future he sets the limits as to how open-ended it is. Mm -hmm. And so uh, God can predict the future, especially where it's something that God has sovereignly decided is going to happen no matter what. You know, uh, you know, uh, 
um, if there's an end game God has in mind, you know, he can steer creation toward that goal. Uh, but at some point he may just have to say, you know what, I don't care what creatures may want to do. I'm not going to allow this. Uh, here's a case in point, uh, the story of Balaam and his donkey in the Old Testament. You know, he was paid by a foreign king to, uh, to curse the Israelites. And he's on his way to some altar or some place where he's going to do this. Mm -hmm. And God sets an angel right in front of him. And the donkey sees the angel and the donkey won't move. Right. And, and so he starts to beat his donkey. And finally, God opens uh, his eyes and the, the, the donkey speaks to Balaam and says, why are you hitting me? You know, and mm -hmm. and and and, you know, you know. Here we have this guy who who. He wanted to do this action, but God decided, no, I'm not going to let that happen. Mm. And he put a roadblock right in Balaam's way. Mm. And once he, he, you know, he showed, he showed to Balaam what was going on. He said, now I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to bless the Israelites and not curse them. Mm. You know, and Balaam did that. You know, you know, he realized there's no thwarting God here. Okay. So, so the one option is, you know, God can get his way when he needs to, mm -hmm. okay? If necessary, by putting roadblocks in the way of creatures so that, you know, they, uh, they, they don't thwart his purposes. Two, a lot of prophecies that you see written in scripture seem to be conditional. Um, mm -hmm. Even sometimes ones that are worded emphatically in an unconditional way. Uh, a clear case in point of this is, is uh, when the prophet came to the king Hezekiah and said, okay, you're about to die, time to put your house in order. Mm. Now Hezekiah didn't respond to that and say, oh, okay, God says it, so I guess I'm going to put my house in order. No, he immediately started pleading with God. God, please extend my life. Please, Lord, Lord, please, please. I don't want to die. You know, God, in response, sends the prophet back to Hezekiah and said, okay, I'm going to add 15 more years. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a prophet right initially when he said, you're about to die? Well, it seems that that, that was actually a conditional thing, right? You know, mm -hmm. Uh, I don't, unless, you know, maybe, you know, you turn to me right now and plead for your life, you know, you are going to die or something like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and, and, and you also have passages like in Jeremiah, I think 18, there's a story about the potter and the clay. And, and it says, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, I will bring blessing on my people. Uh, but if they do this, then I will, you know, uh, I will bring a punishment on them. But if they relent from that punishment, then I will bring a blessing on them. And, and it shows God's responsiveness in uh, uh, kind of reacting to his creatures. You know, what they do is going to influence what he does in response. So, so some prophecies in scripture seem to be conditional. Some to be, seem to mean just declarative things that God's going to do come what may. Uh, I would say a third category is some things that on the surface look like prophecies uh, arguably aren't predictive prophecies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I, I can't really give you a lot of details on this, but it, 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 if you look through the gospel of Matthew, 
And you look for all the, the places where it says that this prophecy was fulfilled in the life of Jesus, right? And it, it quotes the Old Testament. And then you go look back at the Old Testament, the passage which was quoted. Mm -hmm. It often doesn't really look like there was a specific prophecy there in the Old Testament. So, so what is what is Matthew doing when he says this prophecy was fulfilled? Either, either there's some secret hidden type meaning in the text that's not really in the text but you know was part of the divine intent and mm -hmm. he's pulling that out right so there was a kind of a veiled prophecy there uh that uh, that was predictive or he's a hermeneutical uh, he's hermeneutically incompetent mm. you know he he can't understand the old testament properly uh that's an impious thing I want to just say about, you know, the writers of the gospel. So uh, I go with option C, which is that sometimes these prophecies apply to Jesus, but they're not actually saying that this is a prediction, a specific prediction about the life of Jesus. What they're really saying is here's, here's something in the Old Testament which the life of Jesus recapitulates in some important, you know, kind of figurative way. Mm -hmm. uh, so okay. it, it teaches us something important, uh, but it's not necessarily a specific prediction made hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand. I'm not sure if you have any other time. Uh, if you do, I, I might say a word about the, uh, the denial of Peter. Uh, but if, if you need to wrap it up, that's... Uh, I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. Um, there were people like talking in the live chat and such. And maybe we'll have to do a part two. Um, yeah. there's, there's so much we can explore here. Um, so it'll be fun to do that in the future. But I think we are going to have to wrap it up here. So mm -hmm. um, if, if you have any kind of like last thoughts or things you want to say like briefly before we um, do that, feel free now. Um, and then we'll head towards um, ending it now. Yeah. Um, last thoughts. I, I mean, I, I, we'll just... I, I guess say that you know I I came to open theism I came to it came to it reluctantly mm -hmm. I, I I was bothered by this problem of freedom and foreknowledge and I over the course of about ten to fifteen years I uh, carefully explored all of the other options out there and mm -hmm. kind of backed into open theism you know. Well, like, uh, like through the back door, so to speak, before I even knew there was such a thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, since then, you know, I, I've I've thought it through more carefully, and and you know, was able to kind of uh, uh, convince myself that yeah, actually, this is right. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that said. I'll be the first one to grant that there are things about open theism that I'm a little uncomfortable with. You know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I would I would love it if it were true that the Christian tradition reflected a clear and strong stream of open theism from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. Okay, yeah. uh, honest truth. And so, as an open theist, I've got to find a way of reconciling myself with Christian tradition in some way. Uh, yeah, and yes, there are passages in Scripture that uh, I'm going to say. You know what? I'm not. You know, it it it, it may see a, it 
it's a little awkward mm -hmm. perhaps to handle that as an open theist. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, you know, um, but then I think about uh, other issues that Christians debate about, like Calvinism and Arminianism would be, you know, one that comes to mind. And each side has their proof texts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Has their verses that they think clearly say, you know, this teaches our view. And, and these work as proof texts in part because, because, the, uh, uh, because the other side has to do a little bit of fancy footwork. Mm -hmm. you know, to, yeah. uh, to handle them, uh, to massage, you know, their hermeneutic a little bit. And, mm -hmm. and I think, I think something the same uh, is available to open theists and non-open theists. There are texts we can point to that seem to point strongly one way or the other. And then we have to do a little bit of hermeneutical uh, uh, finesse to uh to work through the passages that seem a little bit well tricky mm -hmm. uh, but that's not something that that we aren't used to doing in other contexts with other topics it, it's something you know the bible you know we might like it to be you know crystal clear on every topic of importance but it, it doesn't seem to be that way mm -hmm. uh you know sometimes and and that's why there are so many in-house debates among Christians <laughs> that yeah. seem to, you know, go on interminably. Uh, mm -hmm. But we can live, uh, can learn to respect other viewpoints and just say, you know what, this isn't an issue that should be one that divides us. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an in-house debate, not a, not one that is setting us, you know, like Christians against the non-Christians. It's not, it, it's something when, uh, uh, if you're an open theist or not an open theist, uh, but you love the Lord, you you believe in the Bible, you uh, affirm, uh, you know, the ancient creeds and stuff like that, then I, I welcome you as a brother in Christ. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we can break bread together. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, th thank you so much for your time, Dr. Rhoda. It's been so insightful. And it's just amazing, like how many different avenues you can kind of take this down and how much there really is to think about um so i appreciate that uh thank you everyone who listened today really appreciate it robert curity kelvy um susan everyone else i hope you enjoyed the show if you're new to the channel i encourage you to subscribe leave a like or review if you're listening via podcast and then if you enjoy the show you can support our content on patreon.com so secure and apologetics right now we're a little over 85 percent funded so appreciate everyone's support there um so yeah thank you so much one last time dr rhoda for your time I appreciate the opportunity, Zach, and uh, I've enjoyed the conversation. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope everyone has a good one, and God bless.